Good to be here with you guys. It's gorgeous outside today. You can follow along if uh, you would like to in the bulletin. There's a little outline near the back of the bulletin for the sermon. Also online, version is a fantastic free app for your phone or mobile device. And we are there under the live events section. And you can follow along with the sermon. First, I have good news. Uh, and this... I. I I won't share as much here because you guys are second service people, but we are. The early service is not going to be quite so early starting in June. It's moving from 8 to 8.15 start time. Um, at early service, we have a bunch of early adapters that began attending at 8.15 long ago, so they don't need to make any adjustment. But I think it'll be good, and, and most of you are second service people, but if you want to try that out, the extra fi- especially for young families, that extra 15 minutes is going to be solid. I mean, that's really going to help out. And then kind of the other thing, I won't go into all the reasons, but I think another big, big reason to make that 15-minute change is we were ending up with this big block of just lag time, which is great if you're an insider and you want to have coffee and donuts and talk to all your friends. But for the visitors, it was really like we finished at 9.10 and then the next thing isn't until 9.45. It was just made it kind of challenging for them to want to stick around. So hopefully it's going to help out for some of those things. We'll make absolutely no difference to you guys at second service, but, but I think it's going to be good for, for first service to make that, that slight time change. All right, Luke chapter 8. We've been following Jesus and the gospel of Luke in this unlocked series as he interacts with all, literally all sorts of different people, tax collectors and prostitutes and, and the religious uh, elite there around Galilee, who some of them even have come up from Jerusalem. So word is spreading really fast um, around Galilee and beyond because Jesus uh, is teaching powerfully about the love of God, the kingdom of God. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He is kind of turning over the apple cart and upsetting the religious establishment. So news travels about that. He is befriending and loving and interacting with, peop- with people that, that had just really been kind of kept outside of, of the religious circle for so long. Uh, people like Levi and people like the sinful woman that we talked about last week. So news is traveling and, and going all over the place. News, however, has not reached this place in Luke chapter 8. The other side of Galilee, five miles across the water, you find the area known as the Decapolis. This is Gentile country. Might as well be 500 miles away from Capernaum. They don't know much about Jesus at all. Most people haven't heard about Jesus. It is a, a center of Greco-Roman culture in that part of the world. Think beautiful classical architecture. Actually, they're uncovering some of the ruins even today of this beautiful Greek architecture. Um, it was a place where people were talking not about Jewish theology and the Torah, but they were talking about the latest philosophies coming out of Athens and Rome's, uh, Rome. Uh, it was a place of fine culture, fine dining, affluence, uh, well-educated folks, upwardly mobile folks, a lot different than the other side of the lake. Um, so this is where Jesus is going to land this morning. Now, they liked, the folks that lived in the Decapolis loved their neighborhood, but one thing they didn't particularly like about their neighborhood was this guy. Was, I mean, everybody knew about him. He was a, just a raving 
lunatic, a madman. Uh, If he were alive today in short order, he would end up somewhere, either in a mental institution or end up in a prison somewhere because society just would not know what to do with him. Well, they didn't know what to do with him either. He was the stuff of nightmares, a strong, physically imposing man, in fact, strong enough to break out of the bonds that they put him in several times. He was uh, lived in a cemetery, ran around naked, raving, shrieking, screaming like a wild dog. The Bible tells us that his problem was not uh, mental illness. His problem was demonic possession. So yeah, the stuff of nightmares, right? Um, so he roams around like a rabid animal, living on the ragged edge of humanity. Luke tells us that he has been there a very long time, not wearing clothes, not sleeping under a roof. Uh, not, I mean, he just lived there in the open among the tombs. So how did he get to that point? We don't know for sure how it happened, but, but it's a good question. How does someone end up like this, this distorted version uh, of a man? At some point long, long ago, long in his past, it's not hard to imagine him you know, playing in the neighborhood, on the streets with his friends, uh, coming home, sitting around the dinner table with his family, uh, having conversations around town with people, just a normal life. But somehow over the years, that life has faded. And the life that has emerged is the one that we find this horrific existence of of, of constant spiritual torture, emotional torture, social torture, physical torture. That's his world. That's his world. Now, we aren't told by Luke when things began to go wrong or how they began to go wrong, when the tides of darkness swept into his life, but somewhere evil got a foothold. Evil got a foothold. Somehow evil got a foothold in his life, and he has been the captive of these demons ever since. Now, as we find him in Luke chapter 8, he is a lost soul, ravaged by Satan, a marionette dancing on the strings of these demons that control his thoughts and actions. But guess who is about to step out of a boat onto a beach in his neighborhood? Jesus. Jesus. Well, a little backstory. 20 minutes or a couple of hours before Jesus and his disciples, they're on this boat traveling towards him, going across the Sea of Galilee when this massive storm hits the sea. You may remember the story. The waves are tossing the boat around. The flood water rain is falling into the boat, filling it up. The disciples think they're about to die. They wake Jesus up from a nap of all things. He's napping in the boat. And Jesus scolds the weather. (laughs) Who does that? Jesus tells the storm off, be quiet. And it's quiet. The waves stop lapping and filling up the boat, just stop like a sea of glass out there. The wind is not blowing anymore. The rain is not falling. And Luke tells us the disciples are scared. They had been terrified of the storm. Now they're terrified of of Jesus. Now they love Jesus. But Jesus is a little bit scary, all right? When you can tell tornadoes and storms and hurricanes what to do, you're a little bit scary. And so 
They're asking in hushed conversations, Luke tells us. As the boat is about to hit shore over there, they're asking amongst themselves, who is this guy? Who is this that the wind and the wave obey his voice? So there they are. On the other side of the lake, the Gentile side of the lake. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this guy shows up. Charging at them, sprinting full speed, howling, raving, shrieking. But when he gets to Jesus, he just kind of collapses on the sand there of the beach. Groveling, trembling before Jesus. And so, the Prince of Heaven... And the powers of darkness collide there on the other side of the lake. The disciples, I imagine, as he's shrieking and screaming and sprinting toward them, they take a collective step back, but Jesus doesn't budge an inch. So there he is. He's fallen at the feet of Jesus, just as a condemned man might throw himself at the mercy of a judge or magistrate or a disobedient slave might fall at the feet of his master, trembling for fear of the punishment that may ensue. This man full of demons now trembles at the feet of Jesus. And looking up, and I'm not sure if he was even willing to lock gaze with the Son of God, but looking up in the general direction of Jesus, he asks, What do you want with me, Son of the Most High? That's interesting to me. What do you want with me, Son of the Most High? Look, the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have been following Jesus, listening to Jesus, dissecting His teaching... They haven't come to this conclusion that he is the Son of God. The crowds that have been gathering around Jesus to see the miracles, they're divided about the identity of Jesus. The disciples, the twelve, they don't know that he is the Son of the Most High. They've just been asking, who is this that the wind and the waves obey? But in the demonic world... Among all of the forces of evil and darkness that are, they understand exactly who they are dealing with. You are the Son of the Most High. You're the one who calls the shots in the physical world, whether it has to do with storms or diseases. You call the shots in the spiritual world as well. They have no doubt about who He is. He asks this demon-possessed man, what is your name? And the demon-possessed man responds, My name is Legion, for we are many. Wow. Roman Legion, about 4,200 to 6,000 um, soldiers. Not saying that there were exactly that many demons inside of this man. But what it tells us is Jesus stands before a formidable regiment of demonic powers. They neither... Intimidate Jesus? Yeah, you and I, we'd be scared to death. Jesus is not intimidated, and these demonic powers do not seek to intimidate Jesus. Instead, they cringe, beg for mercy. They tell Jesus, please don't throw us into the abyss. Instead, how about you cast us 
into this herd of pigs. This is where preachers make the deviled ham comment, I suppose. But anyway, throw us into this herd of pigs. Fair enough, the Lord gives them their marching orders. And there they go into this herd of swine. And immediately, just imagine the sounds of those pigs as they went completely berserk. Charged down this hillside toward the cliffs of Gennesaret, plunging to their doom in the lake. What a wild, wild scene. Now, there have been people watching all of this, the pig herders, keeping track of their flock there on the side of the hill. They turn and take off running toward the nearby town to tell everybody what they have just witnessed. And soon they return with lots of the town people, I imagine, who want to see what's going on over here as this wild man that everyone in the community has known for years and feared for years. They want to see what's happened to this guy. And when they get there, Luke tells us there he is, seated, clothed, 100% in his right mind. The townspeople, this is the interesting turn in the story. For years, they had lived in fear of this man. And now, all of a sudden, they're afraid of another man. They're afraid of Jesus, the Deliverer. Just as the demon-possessed man had groveled and begged before Jesus... Now Luke tells us the townspeople are begging Jesus to leave. Just go away. We don't want any trouble around here. Just go back to the Jewish side of the lake. Isn't that sad? (laughs) He could have stayed there. He could have taught those people. He could have healed their sick. He could have preached good news to them. But they wanted him gone just leave. And to be honest, a lot of people even today, they just want Jesus away. Don't want to think about Jesus. Don't want to be around Jesus. Just let me live my life. And Jesus, you know, he honors them enough to to honor their decision. He loves you enough to honor your decision. Jesus is not going to stay where Jesus is not welcome. Jesus is not going to force himself into the life of anybody. Love does not do that. Love does not act that way. It gives you a choice, and it honors that choice. Seeing that Jesus and his disciples now, seeing that they are headed back to the boat, and they are going to leave, the man who has been healed, cured, made whole, he thinks naturally, as I think you or I would, I'm going with that guy. So he's like about to climb in the boat with them. He says, I'm going to go with you, Jesus. Jesus says, no. No, you're, you're not coming with us. Instead of coming with us, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back home. And I want you to tell people what happened to you today. How long had it been since he walked into the front door of his house, saw his parents saw his brothers and sisters. How long since his friends had seen him on their 
street there in town. How long since he had struck up a conversation with someone along the way to the marketplace. So he obeys Jesus and goes back to the town that had cast him out long ago. He shared with his family about how Jesus had made him whole, how the demons were gone now, how he now had something to live for. And Luke tells us he not only told his family, he told the towns around there. Everyone knew this guy's story because he couldn't stop telling people. He was an amazing witness for the power of Jesus. With clear eyes, with a full heart, with a new lease on life, he goes back home and becomes this evangelist among the Gentiles on the other side of the lake. Now, what we want to do this morning is just take a few lessons from this man-possessed um, that I think we can use in our lives. But, very, but before we do that, I just wanted to call out kind of the elephant in the room when you come to this story, which I think is demon possession. I think we're kind of like, uh, not so sure about that. I mean, this is the 21st century. Demon possession, really? Um, that's pretty out there for our culture today. Well, it was pretty out there for their culture in the first century. I mean, it was out there enough that the townspeople had no clue what to do with this guy. And that's how he ends up, like, tied up and stuck out at the town cemetery. They didn't know where to file this either. Um, So it's unclear to me whether they knew he was suffering from demon possession or whether he just... They just thought he was completely off his rocker. But at least at the end of the story, when the reports came in from those pig herders about what they saw of demons leaving this guy and going into those pigs and those pigs committing mass suicide, people had an idea there was something going on that was more than than mental health related. For a long time, I thought this kind of stuff was just, you know, ancient history Nothing like that happens today. Um, And I'll just say, (laughs) I won't get into the stories because that might be the only thing you remember today. But we did see some things in our 10 years in Brazil that at least made us not quite so sure that all of that is, is, is ancient history. It's unfortunate, though, I think. As I come to a story like this and you're dealing with a guy who's demon possessed, I think it's unfortunate that for many of us, the filter that we look through when we think about demon possession is one created by Hollywood because it makes excellent horror films, right? Um, so they have kind of defined for us what that looks like. And without diving into the ins and outs of, of what it might look like today, of what different manifestations of this might look like today, it is my opinion that certainly dark forces are at work in our world. Whether it looks exactly like that, I don't know. But certainly, dark forces are at work in our world. The enemy, Satan, according to Jesus, John chapter 10, he has always been about a very simple mission. Jesus says he came to steal, he came to kill, and he came to destroy. Jesus came, he says in that same chapter, to give people life and life in abundance. The enemy, he wants to wreck your life. 
He wants to steal, kill, and destroy in your marriage, in your career, in your spiritual walk, in your emotional inner life. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. That's been his vision from the Garden of Eden, and it is still his vision today. Jesus Christ has a different vision, doesn't he? He wants you to enjoy abundant life in him. Well, I say all this to say... Please don't dismiss Luke chapter 8. Don't dismiss this story as something with, it's just so mysterious, so weird, so out there, has absolutely no relevance in our modern context. Um, And I think if we do dismiss this story, if we say, oh, that's just crazy old fable or something like that, I I think we play right into the enemy's hands. I really do. And C.S. Lewis wrote a book, a real. It's kind of a funny but wise book, this imaginary discourse. You remember the screw tape letters, imaginary discourses and letters written between uh, a senior demon and a lower level demon about you know, strategies for tempting people and ruining their lives and all of that stuff. And in that book, um, one of the things C.S. Lewis expresses, and I think it's right on, is what better way for the enemy to work than convince us that there is no evil? There are no de- demonic forces. And what better way to kind of pull the wool over our eyes and work freely in our world than do that? So anyway, it, I think this is a very relevant story. And I think you'll see that as we begin to look at the take-homes today. So a few takeaways from the life of this man possessed. First is this. Jesus, Jesus has absolute authority and power to rule over all things. There is nothing real. There is nothing that exists that Jesus does not have authority over. Jesus, all you need is Luke chapter 8, really. (laughs) I mean, Jesus, Jesus shows his authority over the natural world by calming the storm And moments later, he shows his authority over the the supernatural world by calming this soul, this tortured soul. Paul wrote about this authority and power of Jesus many times, but one of the clearest times. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes this, For by him, Jesus, by him, all things were created in heaven And on earth, visible and invisible, spiritual things, um, subatomic particles, all of it, visible, invisible, mountains, oceans, made by his word, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the boss of everything. Okay. He calls the shots. If it's real, if it exists, Visible world, invisible world, it's, it answers to Jesus. Now, God loves us, back to that. God loves us, he respects us, and so he gives us a choice. I think God asks every one of us, who will you trust? Who will you rely on, or what will you rely on? Who will you look to as your Savior? And people look all sorts of places, don't they? You can put your confidence in your looks. Uh, You can put your confidence, your trust. You can rely on fitness, diet, 
all that kind of stuff. That is my Savior. That's what I trust in. You can rely on your bank account. You can rely on your connections, your networking. You can rely on some person, Miss Wright, Mr. Wright. You can, you can trust in a lot of different people, a lot of different things. But it's kind of like a game of Monopoly, isn't it? Because all of that stuff, the money, the, the networking, the talent or the looks, the beauty, whatever, all of that stuff at some point is going to get put right back in the box. You can't take any of that stuff with you, as they say. Jesus, though, interesting, isn't it? He not only has dominion over the physical and spiritual world, he has dominion over death. That's good news to the Martin family today, the Clevenger family today. He has dominion over death. Jesus proves to us that the grave will not have the last word. He faced everything Satan could hurl at him. The mocking, the abuse, the insults, the ridicule, the cross. Even death itself, he took it all and rose on the third day. Yeah, there's nothing that's not under the authority and dominion of Jesus Christ. Choose well what you will trust in. Choose well who you will look to to save you. Choose Jesus. Second thing here this morning... Jesus, and this is the beautiful thing about him, you see it all throughout his ministry. Everywhere he goes, Jesus wants to rescue people from the powers of darkness. That's what he's about. Paul will say, transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. He brings light in all the dark corners of the world. He wants to rescue people. And his power, practically speaking, we see this in the story, it is released into our lives when we come near to Jesus. When we come near to Jesus. So draw near to Jesus. In fact, the first time we see this crazy madman, demon-possessed guy in Luke chapter 8, what is he doing? He is sprinting toward Jesus. He's moving as fast as he can toward Jesus. So moving toward Jesus with my thoughts, my inner life, moving toward Jesus with my money, moving toward Jesus with my worship, moving toward Jesus with the ministries I involve myself in, That is how I create momentum for Christ and the things of Christ in my life. I'm drawing near to Jesus. The second thing is this. Admit that I have a need for healing. I mean, man, we struggle with that these days, don't we? We want to look good. We want to look successful. We want for people to admire us, look up to us, think we've got it all figured out. Man, that Gordon, he's got it all together. But we've got to be willing to admit we have a need for healing. We've got to be, be willing to admit that we are broken. And that's an interesting thing that I spot in this story, really taking it kind of to the next level, 
is Jesus asks this guy whose life is completely broken, what is your name? What is your name? Asks him to name the demon or name the demons within him. And that's what the man did. And maybe there's something for us there. Maybe we shouldn't overlook that. Maybe that's not just kind of a throw-in to the story. Will I be willing to come to Jesus, not in this vague sense, oh, I'm a sinner, just like everybody else. We're all sinners, so there's that. Boy, it's, it feels a lot better, a lot, lot, lot easier, a lot nicer, doesn't it, to just kind of go all vague. Yeah, I struggle with sin. How about you? Yeah, we all struggle with sin. But there's an invitation here to name the demons. Hey, I've been struggling with alcohol addiction for years. Or maybe for you, it's, look, hey, you don't know this about me, but I struggle with same-sex attraction. It's been a real issue for me. Will you pray over me? Will you hold me accountable? You, you fill in the blank, but what courage it takes to name your demons. But there is a, I don't know if this works for you, but I, there's, a, there's like a spiritual lever that's thrown, I think, when we get specific and we start naming those sins, naming that shame, naming that abuse, naming that whatever it is that's haunting us, because that's what demons do, they haunt you. There's a lever that's thrown, and there is power that is released and only released when we're willing to be courageous enough to name those demons. What a huge step toward wholeness that is. Finally, isn't it curious? I don't know if you noticed that. It's kind of the little, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this story, but one of those weird things, maybe the last one, is that final part of the story where that guy naturally and reasonably wants to follow Jesus. Hey, Lord, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. Not the response his disciples were expecting. I don't think it's the response that that man was expecting. But there's something for us there, isn't there? Jesus says, no. I have a different plan for you. I want you to go back home. And I want you to tell those folks and everybody you come into contact with exactly what I have done for you. So literally, this is the take-home lesson today, number three. Jesus doesn't ask most of us to travel far away for the sake of the gospel. But rather, he asks most of us to go back home to our city, to our neighborhood, to our job, to our family, and to be his witness, telling others all that he has done for us. And I know, look, sharing faith, evangelism, that scares a lot of people. I don't, I don't feel like I could do that. I don't, I don't know enough Bible. I don't have enough scriptures memorized. How much Bible do you think this guy knew? You think he could quote any scripture from the Hebrew Bible? I doubt it. What he knew is, I met Jesus... And ever since then, my life has not been the same. It's been amazing what he's done in my life. Can you do that? Yes, you can do that. You can do that. And that's what we're called to do. 
Jesus doesn't, I don't know if you notice this in the gospel, Jesus doesn't walk around in his ministry constantly telling people, hey, I want you to move to Thailand. I want you to go to Africa. No, he, he wants you to stay where you're at. I mean, not always. There are a few people he calls to be missionaries. Yeah, okay. But 99% of the time, he wants you to be a witness where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Because that's where your influence is. That's where people know you. That's where people know the old you and can see the new you. And it's a powerful, powerful thing, isn't it? So Jesus puts him on mission. Luke chapter 8, verse 39. Here's what Jesus says to him. Hey, no, you're not coming with me. Go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all throughout the town proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. Amen. And that's what we're called to do. Be witnesses for Jesus where we are. Maybe this morning, the step you need to take is just that step of faith being, being baptized in the name of Jesus. Wearing all that he won for you through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, and moving into this mission with Jesus as Lord, accepting his rightful authority over your life. You could do that today. Maybe you just need prayer today. There's somebody you care about that's hurting and you want to pray over that person, or there's a situation in your life that you're losing sleep over and you want to pray about that. Um, and we would encourage you to pray with somebody by you, you know, your class or your neighbor there on the pew, or come pray with me or one of our shepherds this morning. Whatever we do this morning, though, let's leave this place worshiping Jesus. Let's stand together and praise his name.